The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Powerful songs, worshiping. I keep wanting to keep thinking about asking you to put the slide of that song up, but it's such beautiful words about the angels and the saints worshiping and us joining that and standing amazed at his power and his glory. And that's really what Romans is all about. We begin the book of Romans. Romans is probably the most famous book of all the Bible, of all the books in the Bible. And it's because God has done amazing things when people simply pick up the Bible and read the book of Romans. Uh, Augustine is one of our founding fathers of the Christian faith, one of the great theologians in the 300s, 400s, and he was uh, known for his licentious lifestyle and not living a, a good holy life, but one of promiscuity. And then he decided to be a Christian like his mother and to try to live the Christian life, but he is constantly uh, disturbed by the fact of his moral failures. And one day he was in a garden and he heard a voice that sounded like a child's voice saying, take and read. And so Augustine rushed back to the place where his friend was only to find the book of Romans. And so he read the book and it radically changed his life. He read Romans 13, 13, and 14 and he put on the Lord Jesus Christ and it changed his life. Martin Luther, leader of the Protestant Reformation, which literally changed the world, was a seminary professor at Wittenberg, Germany, and he was constantly troubled by doubt about his salvation until he and his students were reading through the book of Romans and he began to grasp the true meaning of salvation by grace through faith alone. And so he was changed and he began to work to reform the church and God did amazing things through him as a result of changing his life through the book of Romans. Two centuries later, the world was in spiritual decline and John Wesley was among a few others who were reading Luther's commentary on Romans when he said he felt strangely warmed as he read the Lord opened his mind and his heart to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he led one of, the, one of, the, one of those who were a part of the great spiritual awakening that swept across England and America, which, in which many churches began to emphasize faith in the gospel and the importance of that. No doubt Romans has played an amazing role in Christian history, and my prayer is that it will play an amazing role in your life as well and in my life. I pray that this church is never the same because we've committed to studying through Romans. As I'm saying, you're going to have to read it yourself for that to happen in your life. You can't just think that we're going to do it from here. So I ask you to commit as we study to read it yourself. Number one, to pray that God does a great revival in your heart, in our church, and in this city through this. And number three, that you bring a friend. My prayer is that by the end of the Romans, we have major space problems. Because you have packed the pews with... We don't have pews. You have packed the padded chairs with people. So... Pray that the Lord will radically change you, us, and this city through our study together of Romans. Study it yourself and bring a friend every Sunday. Bring a friend, bring a friend, bring a friend. If you know anybody who you think would be blessed by coming to this service, bring them. And it's going to take a lot of asking before they come. So you got to do a lot of asking. Bring a friend. Let's pray. Lord, help us, please, as we endeavor to study this incredible book. 
We don't worship the book. We worship you, the author of the book. And you do amazing things in your people when we diligently study your word. So I ask, Lord, help us as a church to experience incredible revival, renewal uh, for your name's sake as we study the book of Romans. I pray, Lord, that we will pack this place with people, not for numbers' sake, but for your name's sake, people who need to know the gospel, the wonderful, glorious, good news of the gospel. I pray that you will do great things in and through us in this city, in our families, in our communities, in this church. All for your name's sake. And it's in your name's sake that we pray. Amen. All right, so if you were writing a letter to a group of people and you had to start out saying, well, here's who I am. Who are you? Answer in your mind right now. Someone has come to you, they met you, and they asked that awkward question. Who are you? Who, who are you? Who do you say you are? Where do you go in your mind to say, okay, well, I'm, my name is such and such. No, no. Who are you? Oh, well, I am. How would you, how would you describe yourself? This gets at the identity question. What is your identity? What defines you as a person? How do you define yourself? Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says... Personal identity usually refers to certain properties to which a person feels a special sense of attachment or ownership. Personal identity usually refers to certain properties to which I or a person attaches a special ownership to. What is it about you, your life, what you've heard, what you've experienced, what you do, your purpose? What is it that you attach a special attention to or ownership to that you say... That's who I am. That's my identity. Lots of things can form an identity. Maybe it's uh, what you do. And a lot of us, you know, hey, who are you? Oh, I'm the pastor of Norris Ferry. Okay. So I have this gen- then just said, I identify myself. I at- attach a special ownership to my role as pastor. So much so that that's how I identify myself. Some people identify themselves by what they do, by experiences they've had. Perhaps you've had the tragic experience of a parent who has told you negative thoughts your whole life, you will never be anything. If you choose to attach special ownership to that concept, you will start to identify yourself that way. And we see that this has, you may say, so what? Why are you saying all this? This has tremendous implications on your life. It matters how you view yourself. On the contrary of maybe a parent, which is probably more often the case in our crowd, is your parents worshipped the ground you walked on and thought you hung the moon, your greatest things in sliced bread, and you can do no wrong. I promise you that's going to affect the way you behave when you interact with others and how you think about taking on challenges. How you identify yourself matters. What you allow to define you makes a difference. If you don't think so, just what happens if someone in here comes in here and they think they're the king of England? We call that a mental disorder. <laughs> and they act strange because they're not what they think they are. So it matters how you define yourself, what you allow, what you attach special affection or ownership of, that that becomes 
the identifying definition of your life. So what defines you? Who are you? What have you chosen to place as defining in your psyche? Today we're going to see what it should be as we look at how Paul introduces himself. Today we're going to look at Paul's identity in verses 1 through 7. What's interesting is that we can choose our identity. To a large extent, it's up to you to decide your identity. For example, Dana and I have a lot in common. We dated six years, been married 22 years. Isn't she blessed? We've been together a long time. We went to Captain Shreve High School together. We, we went to middle school together. We went to Uri Drive Middle School together. We went to Captain Shreve High School together. We went to Louisiana Tech together. We graduated accounting together. We studied like crazy for the CPA and got the CPA together. We both have learned how to do QuickBooks together. We both have the same two wonderful daughters together. We have enormous amounts of, of commonality. Yet you ask her, who is she? And she's going to tell you something different than what I'm going to tell you who I am because she has chosen to identify herself with something and I've chosen. I might say pastor, she might say mother. Doesn't mean I don't love y'all just as much as she does though. So what we choose to make our identity is a choice. What does Paul, what does Paul choose? What does Paul say? This is who I am. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, the beginning of the letter. Just like any letter, there's intro. At the end, there's a conclusion. The beat of it's in the middle. We're in the intro, and as traditional way letter writing went, Paul says, here's who I am. Let me introduce myself. Here's who I'm writing to. Paul writing to Rome, the saints, the believers in Rome. How does Paul identify himself? And let's look at 1 through 7. Paul says, Paul, I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Which, what gospel? The gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. I'm writing to you, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in these verses, we're going to see Paul's identity. What has Paul chosen to give special affection and value and ownership? What is he saying? That's who I am. We're going to look first of all at Paul's humble position. And then we're going to look at Paul's humble purpose. So in his identity, we're going to see great humility and it's going to give us his position and his purpose. Look at verse 1. He says his position. He says, Paul, I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus. I am called as an apostle. I am set apart for the gospel of God. 
The word bondservant, first of all, let's look at that. Bondservant of Christ Jesus. That word translated bondservant is also translated many times slave. Paul is saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Who are you, Paul? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. What is a slave? What is a bondservant? It is one who gives himself up wholly to another's will. One who gives himself up completely to another's will. To be a slave is to be under someone's total control. So Paul is saying, who am I? I am one who has given myself up to the total control of Christ Jesus. That's who I am. How do you identify yourself? A bondservant of Christ Jesus. Next, he says, I am called as an apostle. He says, I am an apostle. What is apostle? Apostle with a capital A, meaning the title, the formal. There's only a handful that's ever existed in eternity. So Paul is is pretty special dude here. He's got enormous power and authority in the church. He's saying, I'm called an apostle Capital A means that he met the resurrected Jesus Christ and the resurrected Jesus Christ chose him, selected him, commissioned him to be a minister, a missionary, an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That dude is it. It doesn't get any higher than that. The resurrected Jesus Christ chose him, called him, appointed him, and said, you are my apostle. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. Paul wrote a massive amount of the letters that you have in your New Testament. Paul is it. But what does Paul say? The emphasis is not, I'm an apostle. Get in line, son. He says, I'm called. I'm called as an apostle. In other words, I didn't do anything to earn this. I didn't merit apostlehood. I didn't climb some ladder of righteousness that I finally achieved, righteous apostlehood, and I'm looking down my condemning nose at you losers. Now he's saying, I'm called an apostle. When did that happen? We know from Acts, reading the book of Acts, Paul was was the most religious Jew of all religious Jews. Paul was it. His name was Saul before God changed his name. And he was so intent on being righteous in, in his religion that he, when he heard people claiming Jesus was God and he didn't believe it, he said, this is blasphemy. And he made it his life's purpose to stamp it out. He got official letters from the people in power and said, let me go and let me put them in prison. Let me kill them. Let me stamp out this blasphemous cult that is saying Jesus is God. And what's he doing? He's on the road to the town of Damascus. And that Jesus shows up on the scene. The resurrected Jesus Christ, God in flesh, appeared to to Saul, and he's so impacted by it, he's never forgotten it. 
It is the defining moment in his life. He hits the ground. He's blinded. He's groveling. He's asking, show me the way, O Lord. God in that moment radically changed him, saved him through the gospel and gave him his purpose of apostle. You have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now you will go to the Gentiles in particular. You will go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, with this gospel message. Paul says, who am I? I'm the guy that Jesus called to go to the Gentiles. He called me an apostle. So he sees himself as one who is a slave of Christ Jesus, one called as an apostle, finally set apart for the gospel of God. Paul does not view himself as the center of his identity. His identity is not in himself. His identity is in God and what God has done in him and what God wants him to do. He says, who am I? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm called an apostle. I have been set apart and defining purpose of my life is to spread the gospel of God. Who are you? What, what do you say, this is what defines me? Is it what your parents said about you? What experience has been? Or is it what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ? We see the identity of Paul. Paul's identity is defined by Jesus by the power and the authority of the gospel of Jesus in his life. In summary, we could say Paul's identity is defined by Jesus and his gospel. Jesus revealed himself in all the fullness of his power and authority to Paul, and it forever changed Paul. Paul's ego, Paul's self-definition is comprehensively wrapped up in the authority and power of Jesus and his gospel. And we need to notice what this produces in Paul. It produces humility. If anyone could have been prideful and thrown his weight around and carried a big stick, it was Paul. But what do we see oozing from his character is humility. Humility is not simply thinking poorly of yourself. That's not humility. I have a friend, he'll remain nameless, but I always thought, that dude is the most humble guy I know. Every time I give him a compliment, he insults himself. And I realize that is attractive about a person, but it's not humility just to insult yourself. It's not humility to have a poor self-esteem. Humility is rightly viewing yourself. Let's say you have a, a, a great kid who's a great football player, and you go up to him and say, dude, you are awesome on the field. And he says, no, man, I'm not. Now, if that kid just has a poor self-esteem because his dad's beat him up and said, listen, you are never going to mount to anything, that's not humility. But if that kid is tried out for the professionals, and he's gone, and he's seen the big leagues, and he's like, those are beasts. I am nothing. 
That's humility. It's a proper recognition of oneself in reality as God has set it forth. Paul's humility is a proper recognition of himself as he sees God. He is an apostle. He has all authority. But he's seen Jesus. And he says, I got no authority. I've met the one who has all authority. And the only authority I have is what he has given me. Who am I? I'm nothing. I serve him. Now in that servant of the king, there's all dignity. Who am I? I serve the king. But there's humility. I'm just a servant of the king. Meeting Jesus and seeing the power and the authority in Jesus makes Paul who he is. Has that happened in your life? Has that happened in my life? Paul, his identity is wrapped up in Jesus and his power. He says, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that I've been set for. Well, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's talking about? We're going to study this for the first several chapters, but today let's look at one aspect of that gospel in Romans 2, 1, verse 2 and 4, 2 through 4 of chapter 1. He says, that gospel, speaking of the gospel, verse 2, which he promised beforehand, the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son... Promised in the scriptures all about his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Who was declared the son of God by power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ our Lord. Title of authority. Here Paul describes the gospel. And what we see is that Paul's description of the gospel is centered on the authority and power of Jesus Christ as understood on the foundation of the Old Testament scriptures. If you don't know the Old Testament, if you don't care about the Old Testament, if you just dismiss the Old Testament, you have an anemic, weak, pathetic gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is built on the concept of all of the Old Testament, which starts out with the introduction. Let me tell you who God is. He is creator of the universe. And he's Jesus. All of the old, he's not saying, it's just those, take those prophetic verses that seem to talk about Jesus that are so good and powerful and see those pointing to Jesus and he showed up. That's not what he's saying. Jesus himself said, everything in the Old Testament scriptures was about me. Every story, every illustration, every command, everything God did, it's all about Jesus. If you want to know Jesus and you want to know his power, you need to know your whole Bible. This gospel, he says, is is all about Jesus as the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Jesus. And what we saw was God says, this world has fallen, my kingdom, my subjects of my kingdom are in rebellion. But I'm going to restore my righteous reign and rule over my kingdom through one who is going to come. 
He will be a ruler. He will be a king. He will be the son of Abraham. He will be the son of David, King David. He will be the son of God. God himself will reign and rule to reestablish his righteous kingdom among his subjects. That's what Paul says. Paul says, that's the gospel I'm talking about. The term Christ, he says Christ Jesus, that term is the Greek word referring to anointed one. When they set a king before the people, he bowed and they anointed his head with oil. He was the anointed one. The Hebrew word, the same concept, is Messiah. So Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, is the promised king who God anointed as the righteous ruler of the universe. Having established Jesus as God's promised king, he now focuses on his power. And that's what the emphasis is on in this intro. God's power in Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus was declared the son of God. Look at verse 4. Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? Jesus was declared The Son of God with power by the resurrection. Wasn't He always the Son of God? Yes. Wasn't He always completely powerful? All the power of God is. Yes. Then what's He saying? He's saying that He voluntarily refrained from using His power. He used it all to serve you. He used it all to serve me, to serve the rebellious subjects of his kingdom. He said, they're rebelling against the king and I'm going to lay my life down for them. Suffering servant, death, burial, resurrection, paying the price for sin, absorbing the wrath and punishment of God on himself for us. But then when he rose from the grave, it all changed. Son, Here comes the power. Now he's reigning and ruling with power and authority as God himself in all power and all existence. He's saying that's who Jesus is. When he rose from the grave, he brought it all. And he said, I am displaying. And from now on, we saw when we went through Hebrews, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in all power, waiting to come back on his kingdom and to reward his subjects and to pour wrath on his enemies. He is a powerful, powerful ruler. That's what God just kept Hit me with, do you realize the power in the name of Jesus? He's not just this nice guy who died on the cross for your sins. He's the all-powerful God of the universe. Paul says, that's, that's the gospel I'm talking about. So Paul's complete identity is wrapped up And Jesus' identity as the all-powerful Son of God, Son of David, Son of Abraham, who came, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the grave to reign and rule in all unlimited power in the universe at His disposal. 
And when you get that, when you faith, what else are you going to do but bow the knee? What else are you going to do but think, I'm nothing? I got dignity. Power, really? Am I going to try to exert my power? I got no power. He's all powerful. My purposes, really? My purposes versus his, really? No, I am all about his purposes. Paul's humble position comes from his gospel identity. Who do you say you are? Have you had that life-changing, all-defining encounter with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ? Paul's humble position. Now we see in verses 5 through 7, Paul's humble purpose. If that's who he is, what is he doing? What is his purpose? What's his job? How does he define what he's all about doing? Continuing, he's talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord, verse 5, through whom, through Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Grace. I've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. We're going to look at these terms. Among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. We still see his humility and his purpose. Paul's humble gospel identity is seen in the fact that he exists for Jesus' namesake. He doesn't exist to make a name for himself. He doesn't exist to make himself famous. He doesn't exist for his 15 minutes of fame. He doesn't exist to do something that people will say, man, he made a difference. He doesn't exist for himself or for his name or for his identity or for his legacy. He exists for the name of Jesus. None of us do that. Every day I want to make a name for myself. Every day I want to leave an impression. Every day I have to fight. It's about me. What's my purpose for my life to make me feel valuable? Give me a break. Paul says, it's about Jesus' name. And that's the only satisfying purpose in life. That's the only purpose that exists for all eternity. That will be rewarded for all eternity. He says, I exist for his name's sake. We see his humble gospel identity in the fact that he says, everything I am, anything I have, anything I do, it is all received by the grace of God. See where he says that? We have received through Jesus grace. We have received this apostleship. I didn't earn it. I didn't make myself a name for myself. I didn't finally achieve apostle status. God just gave it to me. Who am I? I'm nothing except you're a recipient of grace. And what does he see his role? What is he trying to do? Why is he writing this letter? Why does he preach the gospel? He says to bring about the obedience of God. Faith. 
That's a hard term to understand because the terms, as Douglas Moo says, the terms are, are, they define each other. They're mutually interpreting. Moo goes on to say that obedience of faith should not be equated. They're not the same thing. He says that they should not be compartmentalized. They're not different. They should not be made into separate stages of the Christian experience. Paul is not simply saying, my goal is that you obey because that's what flows from faith. That's true. He's not saying that. The way he's worded this, he's saying, my goal is to bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience flows from faith, but it's not different than faith. In fact, Paul talks about it, that not having faith is disobedience and, and not having obedience is not having faith. But he talks about them differently. So how do we understand? What does he mean? My goal is to bring about the obedience of faith. And I think the best way to understand it is in terms of this exalted, powerful, reigning, ruler, God of the universe and the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, when you get that, that who he is, that he's king and you're in his kingdom, what do you do? You bow the knee. You believe it. He's that? Well, then all I can do is this. Obedience of faith. Christopher Ashe, I like the way he says it. He says, it's, it's like a city being conquered by a new king who entrusts to the heralds the proclamation of his victory and the offer of his pardon. The herald, therefore, owes it all to the citizens to tell them urgently. If he doesn't, they will incur the anger of the new king by not bowing the knee to him and accepting his pardon. This urgency makes Paul eager to preach the gospel. There's a new king in town. His name is Jesus. He's the God of the universe and you're in rebellion. I have good news. He will pardon those Who bow the knee to him. But those who don't. His righteous wrath is against them. He says. That's what identifies me. I'm a herald of that gospel of Jesus Christ. To bring about the obedience of faith. What identifies you? What defines who you are? When people look at you. When you look at yourself. What do you go to and say. That's who I am. I'm going to grab onto that. That's who I am. That's going to define me. That's going to, that's going to be my ego. That's going to be my identity. That's going to dictate how I act towards others. That's going to be how I steward my resources. That's going to be the all-defining characteristic of my life. I am what? Now, I think Paul, from knowing what he writes later... Paul got it right in the intro. If I was writing a letter, I'd get it right because I'd know what to say. Tracy loves Jesus. Sunday school answers. All the right things. But every day in the heart of the letter, it's a struggle. Every day, Paul is going to tell us, man, I get it wrong so much. But I'm asking you today, at the beginning of the letter, what defines who you are? Not what you wish defined who you are, 
what really defines who you are. What are you grabbing onto? Is it the all-powerful gospel of Christ Jesus our Lord, the ruler of the universe? As Christians, we must treasure the gospel so much. Grasp this beautiful gospel of grace. The king is offering pardon to rebellious subjects of his kingdom. And to bow the knee and receive that grace and to have that be so glorious in our minds and so defining in our lives that it is who we are. That it determines how we think, that it produces a gospel identity, that it sets us apart for the purpose of the gospel of God, that we view whatever power or authority God stewards to us, that we say, this is nothing because everything I have came from God, the all-powerful one. And so I ooze And you ooze humility. Because we're going to see that's one of the main reasons Paul wrote the book. Humility. He says, stop judging each other. Stop looking down at the others. How can you do that if you're in the gospel of the all-powerful creator of the universe, Jesus Christ? We should feel a special sense of attachment, a special sense of ownership to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what defines us. Pray together. Father God, I pray that through the study of your word and exalting Jesus Christ in all his power and all his glory, The king of the kingdom has come. And he has declared that all who bow the knee to him will receive a pardon for their rebellion. God, may we see this morning the power of King Jesus and may it define us. May it humble us to our knees, to the obedience of faith, that our lives would be defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would be set apart for the kingdom purposes of spreading the gospel in our families, with our children, in our workplaces, in our communities, in this city. May we go back wherever we go and may we come back next Sunday with friends in tow. May we fill this place with people who need to know the king has offered a pardon. May we fill this place with with humility and love, realizing everything we have is received only by the grace of God. Lord, stir up a revival of humility for your name's sake. Set us all apart for your name's sake, for the gospel purposes. Become the all defining 
encounter of our life. Because you're the king. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.